had an awesome message brought to you by Pastor Frank last week. He always brings it every week and uh, just such an encouraging, encouraging message. Uh, talked about walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, right? And specifically, he talked about the importance of, of living in balance, taking that which Paul wrote about us in, in, in Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, and now starts setting the stage for how is this to be lived out, right? Chapters 1, 2, and 3, um, again, deal with our position. Now we move into the practices, and right where Pastor Frank covered last week is kind of like that, that hinge where the what is now carried into the, the so what. How now do we live? And he did a wonderful job of highlighting the importance of what does it mean to walk in a manner, manner worthy of, of, of Christ. And, and one of the things he highlighted was that that is not done alone. What we see taking place in Ephesians chapter one, all throughout six, first it focuses on us, but then in and, and our union with Christ, and then it begins to open our eyes to our, our union with one another, right? And this whole idea, we start to see the church beginning to see how, how we are to live out our lives as the church of Jesus Christ, right? And so we see... Um, this idea of walking in a manner worthy of Christ doesn't take place alone. It takes place in community. It's done together as the body of Christ. And as, a, as Pastor Frank mentioned last week, the, this next six section of scripture really highlights the importance and the purpose and the priority of the church of Jesus Christ. Not the organization but the organism, the body of Christ, those who were redeemed. Pastor Frank set up this next section of scripture by, by highlighting the, the qualities that must be present within us. As we continue in this text, he talked about the importance of, of having the qualities of, 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 um, of humility, right? of gentleness, of patience, and of love. Those are the qualities that need to reside in our heart. And, and that's kind of where he left off and passed the baton back into my hand. And now we're going to take a look at the importance of taking those things and adding some content behind what we are to unify around, right? Those things are critically important. You can, but you can have humility and gentleness and patience, but if we don't have a shared faith, if we don't have a common biblical belief system, then unity is compromised at best and false at worst, right? And so we need to have those qualities that Pastor highlighted last week, but we also need to gather around a common belief system that is grounded and founded on the word of God. And that is what Paul is setting, is bringing us to in this next section of scripture. I've met believers or unbelievers who are far more patient than some believers. I've met some unbelievers that are far more gentle, far more humble than a lot of Christians I know, and yet they still are outside the faith. There must be an agreement on what we believe as Christians, right? Humility is good. Gentleness is great. Patience is wonderful. Love is good. But we need to gather around some substance, some truth, some definition, some foundation of what we believe and why we believe it. And it's there that Paul now takes us to this next passage, passage of scripture. Amos talks about in, in chapter three and verse three, he says, can two walk together unless they are agreed? It's just not possible. 
when two people aren't in agreement on where they're going, it's not possible to get and arrive at the same destination. There needs to be unity. And in our text today, Paul presents what I'm going to call the playing field of unity, the content, the what do we gather around? What do we celebrate around? What is the truth that we hold dear? What is our foundation? And he'll highlight in this next passage five foundational truths of unity that exist amongst followers of Jesus Christ. I'm going to bring us back to the beginning of chapter 4 so we get a, a, a full context of where we're going. Um, Paul writes in chapter 4 in verse 1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And I love this, he says in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I love that. Eager to maintain that, right? You are intentional about that. It's a priority in your life. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So we saw the hard qualities necessary for unity last week. And now Paul will present to us the content that we will unify around. What are we gathering Around What is the substance, the content of what we must unify around? And he picks up in verse four, which is where we head on this week. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One faith, I'm sorry, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, each of these subjects will be touched upon throughout the remaining passages that we find in Ephesians. And so I'm not going to do, I'm going to cover each and every one of those, but not in so much depth um, because it will be addressed a little bit more as we get into Ephesians. But the first thing that Paul will highlight that we must have in, 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 in unity and share in is the fact that we are one body. The first one that Paul highlights is the audience to whom he's writing, namely the body of Christ. It's the universal church. It's the body of believers throughout the ages that have placed their trust in Christ alone and were born again of the spirit of God. Do you realize you're a part of the body of Christ that predates you? We're a part of the family of God. It's that group of people that Paul made reference to earlier on that were dead in their trespasses and sins, but are now made alive together in Christ Jesus, right? We were dead and now we're made alive. We're the body of Christ. This was very important for this church to understand, considering the way in which the Jews and the Gentiles viewed each other. As I mentioned earlier, there was a lot of conflict between those, those two groups. There was a lot of churches that Paul addressed in the New Testament. He wrote to the church at Ephesus, is what we're reading right now. He, he talked to the church of Philippi, the church of Colossae. He addressed the church of Thessalonica. He addressed the churches in Galatia, which was the churches that in a region, the region of Asia Minor. You see, these were all expressions, local expressions, of the global universal church of Jesus Christ each of them equally valuable, 
Each of them equally loved, equally important, and equally a part of the body of Christ. Our appreciation for the one church is not to undermine the importance, though, of the local church. It's critically important. We need to celebrate the fact that we are a part of the global church, but we also need to recognize the importance and the value of the local body of Christ. It ought to elevate our appreciation and the importance of the local church as part of the body of Christ, as the part of the greater body of Christ. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now it's getting a little bit warm in here, so I hope you're warmed up. Let's turn it down. <laughs> Let's look at what he says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Well, Paul, the, the picture Paul paints here is that the body of Christ is one. He's speaking of giving us the illustration of the physical body, right? You have your physical body. You are one body, and yet there are many parts to your body, right? Your arms, your hands, your feet, your nose, your eyes. There's many, but equally important, you're all part of the body. And he's saying the same way, we have the global church of Jesus Christ, the universal church of Jesus Christ, right? All of those who have put all their trust in Christ alone for salvation over the ages represents the body of Christ. But we, it is made up of individual churches as well. Glad you found that on the web, Siri. <laughs> made up of individual churches as well, equally important, equally valuable, equally a part of the body of Christ. You see, if we're going to walk together, it's important to have an understanding that the body of Christ is so much more than just our local expression of it. Integrity is not the church. We're a church, part of the church. And there are wonderful churches all over Long Island, all over New York, all over the United States, all around the globe. They're a part of the church. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And what makes them our brothers and sisters in Christ is we gather around a common belief system, this unity that Paul will talk about. And he said, there's one body. And then secondly, Paul will say this. He'll say that there's, there's one spirit. Now, namely, speaking, obviously, of the, of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is one in essence. The, the Trinity is one in essence, yet three in person. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all e co-equal with one another, co-divine with one another, one in essence, yet three in person. And Paul says that there is one Spirit. He'll make reference to the full Godhead in this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today, but he talks about the Holy Spirit. Paul will make over a dozen references to the Holy Spirit in this epistle because a proper understanding of the Holy Spirit is essential for unity to exist. Not only is it essential for unity to exist, here's why it's essential for unity to exist. Because there is so much emphasis in the book, in this passage of scripture in, in, in the book of Ephesians, there's so much emphasis on the church in the book of Ephesians, we can't forget that the church is the church because the Holy Spirit of God dwells within us. What distinguishes us from any other organization is that God, the Holy Spirit, resides within the body of Christ. 
And what Paul is saying here is, is that, that this Holy Spirit is within you. There is one spirit and it is the spirit of God that is within you that makes you the one body that he just made reference to. Jesus talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit in John chapter four, 14. He says this in verse 15. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. You see, I got to picture the scene here. Jesus has been walking with his disciples for, for three years. His ministry on the earth is coming to an end. Everything they believed, everything they held to was connected to their relationship with Jesus and his presence in their life. But it's at this point in Jesus's ministry where he's kind of like dropping hints that I'm going to be leaving pretty soon. Things are going to, get change, going to change. And he said, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper and he'll be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, speaking of the Holy Spirit, for he dwells with you and the Holy Spirit will be in you. I love that. You see, Jesus walked with the disciples, but Jesus is saying, listen, another one is going to come just like me, very God of very God, and he will not only be with you, but he will be in you. And he will be with you and in you forever. You know what we call that group of people? The church of Jesus Christ. We saw after the ascension of Jesus that the disciples were gathered together in Jerusalem, right? They're praying and we see the promise of the Holy Spirit come to fruition as they're in the upper room and they're praying and like a mighty rushing wind, the Holy Spirit comes and rests upon the church and we see that the Holy Spirit not only rests upon them, but begins to fill them. And we see the birth of the church in Acts chapter two. And it will be the Holy Spirit within them that will empower them to walk worthy of the calling to which they were called. It would not be their own strength. It would not be their own resolve, but the power of the Holy Spirit working through them. You shall receive power, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my disciples. You will be my messengers. You will be a reflection of me to the world. You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so an understanding of who the Holy Spirit is, the person of God, is essential that we must unify around. Thirdly, Paul makes reference to this one hope. New King James Version calls it the hope of our calling. This hope that Paul is referring to is the return of Christ that will be ushered in, it will usher in the redemption of all things as God designed them to be prior to the fall. It is the hope for the believer that there's gonna be a day where we cross out of time and into eternity and we will walk in the reality of everything being as God designed for it to be, absent from sin, absent from pain, absent from sickness, in the presence of Jesus forever. It is the hope of our salvation. And we are to remain ready for that moment. Jesus alluded to this earlier on in the same dialogue that he was having with them about the, the coming of the Holy Spirit. He says this to them in John chapter 14. He says to them, listen, let not your hearts be troubled. As I mentioned before, the reason was because they were troubled. Jesus was leaving, right? They, they, they had a lot of trust in him. Their comfort level was connected to Christ. And, and as Christ is talking about leaving, they're getting unsettled. And he said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. 
If you believe in God, believe also in me. This is my Father's house and many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? He's like, I He's like I, would, I, would I lie to you? He says, no, I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and I will take you to myself. Why? So that where I am, you may be also. Can I just tell you that's the heart of your father? That's the whole plan of redemption is so that we would be with our father forever so that where I am, you may be also. This is not wishful thinking, but it's the hope that is sure and as sure as the resurrection of Jesus. When we think about this idea of Christ coming for his church, our awareness that Christ could come for us at any moment ought to motivate us to live our lives in such a way that we're ready for his return. That our priorities, that our practices, that everything that makes us us would reflect our awareness that at any moment, Christ can take us off this earth, can rapture us. Because interestingly, what John is talking about here, what Jesus is talking about in John 14, he's not talking about the second coming of Christ here. There's a lot of passages in scripture that make reference to the second coming of Christ. What Jesus is referring to here is not the second coming of Christ, but the rapture of the church. The second coming of Christ will follow a seven-year tribulation where Christ will come with his church but the rapture will take place before the tribulation where Christ will come for his church. When we read about the, the, the second coming of Christ, we see that Christ will come and he'll put his feet on the Mount of Olives. He's gonna land on the earth. But in, when, we, when, when we see here in John chapter three and other, uh, John chapter 14, as well as other passages, we see that the rapture of the church is not Christ coming to the earth, but Christ taking his church off the earth. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. I will snatch you. I will rapture you. I will pull you from the earth. Why? So that where I am, you may be also. That's a beautiful thing because here's the deal. The rapture could take place at any moment. It is the next event on God's calendar. And at any moment, the church can be raptured. And once the church is raptured off the earth, then the seven-year tribulation is going to take place and all hell will break loose as the wrath of God is poured out on the earth. That's why you're not going to be in the tribulation because the tribulation is the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. And in Christ, we, have, we will not be under the wrath of God. And for seven years, there'll be a, a period of tribulation. But after seven years, Christ will come now with his church in the second coming through the clouds, and he will set up his kingdom right here on this earth for a thousand years. And we'll enter into a millennium period. And so what, what, what we see Paul highlighting here is, man, that's the hope of our salvation. Aren't you encouraged to know that there's so much more than just this? I mean, I love my life. Don't get me wrong. I love, I love my life and my wife. I love my family. I love, I love my church. I love every, I wouldn't change anything I have here, but I gotta tell you, this world is not my home. I just don't fit in around here. There's something in me that cries out for all that God has and all that God wants. And I want to live the life that God designed for us to walk in absent from the presence of sin. And there's coming a day. It's the hope of our salvation. And that's the, Paul will make reference to that being the very hope of our salvation. We need to remind ourselves that no matter what we're going through, it's only for a season, 
right? We as believers will never die. We'll simply step out of time and into eternity and be in the presence of Jesus. It is the hope of our salvation. We gather around that hope. We, we live lives and we walk in a manner worthy that reflects the fact that we recognize our citizenship is in heaven. Then he says, there's, there's one Lord. One Lord. Obviously, this is referring to the Lordship and the Lord, to the Lord Jesus Christ. The reality is that everything that exists revolves around the Lordship of Jesus Christ. When we speak of Christ's lordship, we're referring to his right of ownership and rule over our lives. And can I just tell you, as Americans, we just don't like that. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. We don't want anybody telling us how to live. We don't want anybody telling us what we think. We don't understand lordship. And Jesus steps in and he is our Lord. You see, it's not just about believing in God. James says even Satan believes. It's about recognizing him as Lord of our lives. This is a term that oftentimes gets lost on us as Americans because we don't have a system of government that has lords for us to be subject to. But when we say, when we say Christ is Lord, we're recognizing that he is supreme. It means that he calls the shots. It means that my opinions and my preconceived ideas matter not. My wants and desires, they yield to his lordship. You see, we serve and exist at the pleasure of our Lord. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He is the Lord. I am his servant. My life exists for his pleasure. We lose that. And Paul is highlighting the importance of understanding that there is one Lord. I know people don't like, don't like to present that in their evangelistic crusades. A lot of times the plan of salvation is presented as, well, we just come to Jesus and your life is going to get better. He's going to make you happy. He's going to take the problems away. He's going to take the biggest problem away. They were born into the wrath of God, heading into a crisis eternity lost, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That was our biggest problem solved in Christ, and now I follow him as Lord of my life. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you to do? It's not just about saying I believe. How many have heard, how many have heard this phrase? I'm a Christian, I'm just not living the life. What does it mean anyway? It's like I'm, it's like I'm saying I'm pregnant, I just don't have a baby. Those two words contradict. To make Christ Lord means that it's all about him. Now, listen, I get it. We, we make mistakes. We jump in the way. We, we have our, our stuff we need to work through. I'm, I'm a work in process just like you and me, just, just like you are. But it's not about our perfection. It's about our direction. 
Am I seeking to become more and more like him? We have one Lord. And here's why this is so important. In a practical sense, we see how a group of people who are equally committed to Christ's lordship in their lives, how it sets the stage for tremendous unity and blessing. Because that's the heart of God for his church. You see, here's the thing. Whose church is this? It's Christ's church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, right? And so what Christ Christ does is he takes a whole bunch of people like me who are imperfect and he puts us into a room together. And he says, remember I'm Lord. And we have opportunity now to submit to his lordship. You see, as Christ is building his church, He's helping me to learn how to relate with one another, how to love one another, how to be patient with one another, how to be kind towards one another. He's teaching us the ways of God to be manifest. That's why the church is so critically important because this is the playing field, if you will, for sanctification so that our lives can be a light to the world around us. And when we recognize that Christ is Lord, when I recognize Christ is Lord, I can't hold a grudge against you. I can't be angry at you. I can't think less of you. Because Christ doesn't think less of you. And Christ isn't angry of you. And you see, when a group of people are equally committed to the lordship of Christ, then there isn't anything we can't work out. And that's how Christ builds his church. There's one Lord. And you're not it. And neither am I. We exist at the pleasure of Jesus. We have the life of Christ to learn how to navigate love, acceptance, goodness, kindness. We have the Holy Spirit of God within us to accomplish that to the glory of God. One Lord. Number five, he says that we have one faith. Paul's reference to one faith was understood by the Ephesian church to be that collective group of teachings that the church recognized as coming from the apostles and taught to the churches. What the church at Ephesus embraced as the one faith was that collective group of teachings that the church recognized as coming from the apostles and taught to the churches. Jude verse three says, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What faith? That teaching of that collect, the collective group of teachings that, that was recognized as coming from the apostles. Paul will write to his son in the faith, Timothy. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust this to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Again, he's taking that group of teachings that came from the apostles. You see, obviously, to the audience Paul was writing to, their scripture was evolving before their very eyes. They had no idea that Paul would be writing the Bible, right? They had no idea that Paul wrote three quarters of the New Testament. They had no idea that this was the word of God. So for them, it was evolving before their very eyes. But for us, now being recipients of the completed Bible, we, we identify our faith, our belief system, our doctrine from the teachings of scripture not the traditions or interpretations of man, but the faith that has been delivered to the saints. There's one faith. 
It is not faith plus, plus tradition. It is not faith plus popular opinion. It is one faith that is grounded and founded in the word of God and the word of God alone. One faith. And then Paul says that there's one baptism. Paul says that there's only one baptism, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Now, while we read about water baptism in the scripture, we read about the baptism of repentance. We read about the baptism of fire. The baptism that Paul is referring to here is most likely the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, sadly, since the early 1900s, that has come to mean different things to different people with the birth of the Pentecostal church in the 1900s. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is when a believer is baptized into the body of Christ. It is a work that is done by the Holy Spirit, why, but whereby we come into union with Christ and with one another. We are born again into the body of Christ. It is not a second work of grace, as many may have been taught, whereby the Holy Spirit fills a person like they see it happen in Acts chapter 2. That's what's taught in Pentecostal churches. Pentecostalism is a desire to repeat what took place in Acts chapter 2, which, by the way, never fully happens. You never see the mighty rushing wind. You never see the cloven tongues of fire. You never see all the other things. There's a, there, a person has an experience with the Holy Spirit, and what Pentecostalism teaches is that that experience needs to be repeated after salvation in the heart of every believer. And so not only does it never happen, let me just say this, it is not something that is taught anywhere in Scripture other than the book of Acts and only in a couple of chapters. Now, I bring this up because this is a subject of tremendous tension in the church today. And let me just say, those who hold to that are my brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of my closest friends are Pentecostal. I just disagree with them on this area. I don't see this teaching throughout the Scriptures. If the baptism of the Holy Spirit was to be taught as a second necessary experience for the Christian it would have been mentioned far more in the New Testament. It would have been presented with clarity as, as Paul was writing how the church was to grow and how what the church was to experience, but it's only in the book of Acts. Why? Because the book of Acts is a transitional book. This is where the, the shift from the old covenant to the new covenant took place. And so as Jesus talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit, which would usher in the new, the new covenant, we see that taking place in Acts chapter 2. Jesus tells them to go and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And as they're praying, the Holy Spirit comes. And he fills not only the house, but he fills the hearts of the believers and what they're called to do is now go into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth with what? With the message of the new covenant they just experienced. And so as they're watching and journeying through the book of Acts, we got to remember something, that social media didn't exist during the time of Acts. You couldn't make a phone call to everybody and say, here, here's what happened though, when the Holy Spirit came. You, didn't have to, you couldn't put a, a, a blast feed or a website or anything. It took some time for what took place in Jerusalem to trickle on through. There was a period of transition. That's why we read about when, when, when they came upon Christians and they say, hey, did you hear of the Holy Spirit? They're like, in, in Acts chapter 19, we didn't even know about, we didn't even hear about a Holy Spirit coming upon the church. And so they pray for them and they experience what the disciples experienced back in Acts chapter 2. It's a transitional period in the church that we, we see never is repeated 
after the book of Acts. Why? Because it's a transitional period. They were taking the message of the new covenant from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the othermost parts of the earth. And so as that message was becoming clear and that fulfillment was being communicated, now we see that each and every one of us have the Holy Spirit in us. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 10 tells us we are complete in him. Everything I need is in Christ. That doesn't mean, though, and this is really important, that doesn't mean that we're not to have an experience of the Holy Spirit. And that's, where, that's the part that gets oftentimes lost. Oftentimes, when people do, who, oftentimes people throw away everything that they see in Pentecostalism and says, well, you know what? That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We want nothing to do that with that. And so they go to the other extreme and they have no relationship with the Holy Spirit. There's no experience with the Holy Spirit. There's no walking in the Holy Spirit. And as we come to chapter five, we're gonna see Paul's call for each and every one of us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, he says, not just once, but be being filled. It's an ongoing experience that ought to be the reality of the believer. But it's not that we're getting any more of the Holy Spirit. It's that the Holy Spirit is getting more of us. And as the Holy Spirit is getting more of us, he is empowering us for service. And we're gonna, I'm really looking forward to digging into that because that's something I'm really passionate about. But it's really important that we understand that there's a difference between being filled with the Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, there is one baptism and every person that has been placed, that has placed their trust in Christ as their only means of salvation is baptized or immersed or brought into union with the body of Christ. Paul echoes that again in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. Again, there my brothers and sisters just disagree on that area of theology. It's not an area of theology that was ever taught after, prior to the 1900s. It's a fairly new doctrine Sorry, to the church. I said Sorry. that... <laughs> I said it's a fairly new doctrine that has not been taught prior to the 1900s. And so anything that's come new, we always need to kind of question things that come new. So <laughs> lastly, Paul says this, that there's one God and Father. She's got something to say. Uh, there's one God and Father. This well rounds the presence of the Trinity in our unity. He made reference to, um, obviously, the reference to the Son, our, our Lord, made reference to, the, to there being one Spirit, and now he presents God, our Father. So here, here's the key. If we all have the same Father, that makes us what? Family. Right? We're the family of God. This is a truth that is all over the writing of Scripture, that we are the family of God. That we're the objects of his love and his affection. We're the objects of, a, of the love of our, of our heavenly father, who Paul opens up this letter by declaring this heavenly father has blessed us with every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul's quite concerned that the churches remain in unity because unity in the home 
at the heart of the Father. I mean, isn't that your goal at home as well? Dads, like, aren't you willing sometimes to just let anything go just to have some peace and quiet? Like, can we just kind of like let it all, like, so what, the house is a mess, but can we just all get along, right? Not the, that God does that, that with the essential stuff, but, but our Father values the unity of his family, the unity of the body of Christ. And Paul is highlighting that critically important piece of unity. And in a very practical way, Paul is reminding this family of believers in Ephesus and at Integrity who come from all different backgrounds, all different experiences, all different races, all different socioeconomic backgrounds, different neighborhoods and different opinions, that we have one father. That's what makes us family. We need to preserve the unity of the faith, of the family. It's not unity at the expense of truth. Some people in some churches are willing to accept things that are unbiblical for the sake of unity. Popular opinions of the day, political agendas of the day, things that the scripture clearly says are sin, like abortion and homosexuality, the church softens its position on those things to be all things to all people. As I said earlier on, the problem with that is it is not a, a true unity. It is a, it is a compromised unity at best. It is a false unity at worst. Unity without the guiding principles of the word of God, without truth, is just the appearance of unity. In fact, it's uniformity, and it does not exist. It's unity that fellowships around these seven areas of truth that we looked at, and it sets the stage for how we are to walk together. How can we walk in a manner worthy, walking worthy of the calling to which we called? In unity, but embracing the truths of Scripture so that our truth can be clear and that our unity can be real. And as we continue on in this journey of chapter four, five, and six, we're going to see all the opportunity and we'll see that much of what's about to take place, how and where we walk worthy, it takes place in the playing field of relationships. That's where it gets really practical, really clear, and really messy sometimes. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that it's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence amongst us and within us. I pray that the truths of your word would find its place in our heart and bring forth fruit that brings glory and honor to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.